Winston was dreaming of his mother. He must, he thought, have been ten or eleven years old when his mother had disappeared. She was a tall, statuesque, rather silent woman with slow movements and magnificent fair hair. His father, he remembered more vaguely, as dark and thin, dressed always in neat, dark clothes. Winston remembered especially the very thin soles of his father's shoes and wearing spectacles. The two of them must evidently have been swallowed up in one of the first great purges of the fifties. At this moment, his mother was sitting in some place deep down beneath him with his young sister in her arms. He did not remember his sister at all except as a tiny, feeble baby, always silent, with large, watchful eyes. Both of them were looking up at him. They were down in some subterranean place, the bottom of a well, for instance, or a very deep grave, but it was a place which, already far below him, was itself moving downwards. They were in the saloon of a sinking ship, looking up at him through the darkening water. There was still air in the saloon. They could still see him and he them, but all the while they were sinking down, down into the green waters, which in another moment must hide them from sight forever. He was out in the light and air while they were being sucked down to death, and they were down there because he was up here. He knew it and they knew it, and he could see the knowledge in their faces. There was no reproach either in their faces or in their hearts, only the knowledge that they must die in order that he might remain alive, and that this was part of the unavoidable order of things. He could not remember what had happened, but he knew in his dream that in some way the lives of his mother and sister had been sacrificed to his own. It was one of those dreams which, while retaining the characteristic dream scenery, are a continuation of one's intellectual life and in which one becomes aware of facts and ideas which still seem new and valuable after one is awake. The thing that now suddenly struck Winston was that his mother's death nearly 30 years ago had been tragic and sorrowful in a way that was no longer possible. Tragedy, he perceived, belonged to the ancient time, to a time when there were still privacy, love, and friendship, and when the members of a family stood by one another without needing to know the reason. His mother's memory tore at his heart because she had died loving him when he was too young and selfish to love her in return, and because somehow he did not remember how she had sacrificed herself to a conception of loyalty that was private and unalterable. Such things he saw could not happen today. Today there were fear, hatred, and pain, but no dignity of emotion, no deep or complex sorrows. All this he seemed to see in the large eyes of his mother and his sister looking up at him through the green water, hundreds of fathoms down and still sinking. 1984 Part 1, Chapter 3. Welcome to Professing Literature. This is 
the literature podcast where we take something small and go deep into it, looking at how a piece of writing works, reading between the lines, getting a glimpse of techniques, of illusions, of implications, and working across different literary genres and periods in the hopes of seeing a writer in action. Welcome again. My name is David Anderson. I'm Associate Professor of Renaissance Literature at the University of Oklahoma in Norman, Oklahoma. With me, of course, is producer Eric Williams, and we uh, are happy to greet you from another gray fall day in Norman, Oklahoma. We've had a run of them lately, and it's really the perfect weather to discuss this book, I think, Eric. Um, there's a lot, there's a, a certain amount of sunshine in this book, but it feels like a book to be read and talked about with dark, thick, heavy rain clouds overhead. And so George Orwell is our topic for today and his most famous, or at least one of his two most famous works. That is, of course, one of the great debates about 20th century British literature is whether 1984 Animal Farm is Orwell's masterpiece. And, uh, you know, both are masterpieces. I think for me, 1984 is the novel that that really stays with me. You're familiar with 1984, Eric. I am. Uh, do you, yeah. When did you encounter that? Was it in school or just on your own? Uh, I remember it in, in high school. and Assigned? Yes. Assigned. Yeah. And I didn't read it. Because ah. uh, I didn't read much in high school. Okay. It wasn't after, after graduating high school that I went back and started Atoned. reading about all the books that I had missed along the way. And Boy, if they could all do that. That's good. So I, I read it when I was 19 or 20, mm-hmm. and I thought it was good, but I didn't quite appreciate it yeah. as much as I did later on. Okay. Uh, I could see I that. came back to it. It's so horribly, well, it's just devastating. I remember reading it as a teenager for the first time. I don't think it was assigned. I think I just heard about it and got curious. And and I think the title was intriguing to me. And so I wanted to know what 1984 meant. And I remember reading it. And if you don't know the book, beloved listeners, then I'm sorry to spoil it, but it's, it's been out for 70 years now. So I think it's fair game for spoilage. But there's sort of rising sense in the first two-thirds of the novel that this horrible, oppressive, dystopian tyranny that Winston is living in is 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 to be resisted and that he's, even even though you maybe understand that he's going to go down in flames, you think some meaningful act of resistance might take place, even if it's a failed one. But then part three starts and you realize you're you're just in hell. You're pretty low down in the inferno. And what Orwell gives you in the last third of the novel is hopeless. And so as a teenager, um, I remember being really stirred and bothered and freaked out by that, almost in tears. And it's not what a teenager expects of a book, I think. They, they can understand, and these are themes that we sort of read about in the opening passage I read, but a teenager can understand and appreciate tragedy, and maybe even in a way that's keener than uh, people later in life. But that, just the bleakness of 1984 was almost more than I could handle. But yeah, it's uh, at the same time, such a wise book, such an astute book, such a beautifully put together book, and such a moving book that I found myself coming back to it repeatedly over the years. So 
excited to be talking about it today. So 1984, of course, is Orwell's dystopian masterpiece, his warning about a future totalitarianism. And it seems clear that Orwell, as he was writing this in the last year of his life, felt that, you know, this was not just a thought experiment for him. He, he felt there was a very real possibility that the peoples of the world could slip into kind of inescapable tyranny. And so there's, uh, it, it, there's a warning here. But we'll see how he begins setting this up, even in the first page of the novel. I'm not super familiar with Orwell, just his life and anything. Well, yeah, well, he's, he's, a, he's a really interesting figure. A figure who, in some ways, was kind of kind of positioned himself, and maybe was positioned on the kind of fringe of the various worlds, intellectual, political, and otherwise, that he was curious about. But he, he sort of made for himself a remarkable life. He uh, he was not born George Orwell. George Orwell was a pseudonym, a nom de plume. His he was born Eric Blair. And uh, he was born just a little bit too late for the Second World War. I think he was born 1903. It's the kind of thing that a capable seasoned podcaster would know before an episode begins. But I think it was 1903. So he was just that little bit too young, luckily for him, to uh, join in the fun of the meat grinder on the Western Front. His family, his father had been a civil servant in India, as so many middle-class Englishmen were, and then returned sort of in his, the back half of his middle age to England, where the family lived in a kind of genteel poverty, where there was never quite enough money. You could live very comfortably in British India with a modest salary because everything was so cheap there in the 19th and early 20th centuries, and then you would come home to England and really, really have to stretch your shilling a lot further than you were used to. And so that kind of life of, of genteel poverty really had an effect on Orwell, and Orwell became acutely class conscious, as so many young men of his generation were, and really in a way that, that made democratic socialism kind of morally attractive to him. He defined himself and his family. It's a wonderful turn of phrase, and an, an English person really gets this, but he defined his family as lower, upper, middle class. And there's a lot of specificity there, so you have to work backwards with this phrase. They're in the middle classes. They're not elites. They're not gentry or aristocrats, but neither are they the working poor. They're in the middle class. They're at the upper end of the middle class because the family is educated and used to a certain kind of level of, of uh, gentility, but they're on the very low end of that upper middle class. So they're just kind of hanging on by their fingernails to that upper middle class status. And he could feel the family slipping down. When he was a young man, however, he had a stroke of what to most people would look like good fortune. He won a scholarship to Eton, the most exclusive school really in the world. He went off to Eton on scholarship, rubbing shoulders with the children of the rich and powerful. But instead of going on to university, he was not a great student at Eton, but nor was he a bad one. But instead of going on to university, he joined the imperial police 
And so he served as a police officer in Burma, which at that point had been a, a British part of the British Indian Empire for a good few decades. And so he was kind of playing out this, this classic British colonial role, and he came to despise it. This politicized him fully. He hated his job. He hated the way he interacted with the people. He hated everything that it implied. Um, he hated the empire that he was serving. And he hated the kind of inherited privilege that the job seemed to depend on. And so he was fully converted then to a kind of democratic socialism. And so he quit the police service roundabout, I think, 1930, 32, again, details that I should have nailed down, and decided that he wanted to become a writer, that that was his vocation. And his first novel, Burmese Days, was about someone similar to him who was a government official in Burma. And it's not a great novel, in my opinion, but he got better quickly. For the next 20 years of his life, until his death in 1949, he was consumed with writing and with politics and served in the Spanish Civil War on the anarchist side, wrote an amazing book about those experiences called Homage to Catalonia, served for the British government in the Second World War, basically doing a job that's somewhat similar to that that Winston Smith does at the Ministry of Truth, and continued to write. In some ways, Orwell is not the most attractive figure. He comes across often as very dour and can be, there can be a kind of heartlessness sometimes to him. But he's a, a writer, I think, of, of, of enormous integrity, and I really prize that mm. in him. Orwell was a man of very firm political convictions. He was a man of the left. He wanted a lower-class revolution of a kind, albeit um, a somewhat gentle and, and democratic revolution in British society. But he was a man above party. He was a man who despised political orthodoxy and the idea that there is a set way of thinking. And that took a certain amount of courage in Britain in the 1930s and 40s. He knew from the beginning, or at least from the point at which he started to really follow politics in his um, early 30s, he knew what the USSR was. And he knew that it was a disgrace to socialism and to humanity. And that was in an era where British and French uh, Western European socialists did not criticize the USSR and indeed tended to have a kind of slavish adoration of it. And Orwell had none of that and despised it and knew what it represented and was really the first major writer in the Anglo-American tradition who was sounding that alarm bell that those who are on the left because they actually care about human beings need to draw a very clear distinction between their politics and those of the totalitarian monster in Russia. He did not, you know, his socialism was not based on a kind of resentful hatred of the aristocracy in England. He didn't like it very much. He wanted to see the House of Lords democratically abolished. 
but that wasn't at the center of things for him. Instead, there was there's the, you you read his nonfiction in particular, and there's the sense of a man who wants to change his country, insofar as changing it can make life better for people, especially for the poor. And other than that, we see a man who, and this was unusual for a man of his politics at the time, but a man who really loves England and doesn't want to erase it and start over. You know, England, of course, in 1984 is not named England. Britain is not named Britain. Instead, the island is called Airstrip One, which is Orwell's way of, of imagining the party just coming along and, and throwing the history books into the fire and giving it this anodyne technical name that erases culture and memory. And so throughout Orwell's writing, including 1984, you get this abiding love of things like the English countryside and village pubs and local customs and certainly the literary tradition and the sense of a man who, and I think this is unusual whether you're talking about people on any part of the political spectrum, but a sense of a man who's thought a lot about politics and who wants to who wants to use politics not in order to win but in order to heal and this is very much against the kind of technocratic mass movement totalitarian solutions of right or left in this era who wanted to start everything over from zero did they always did they always want to just burn it all down and remake it oh boy um some of them do, certainly since the French Revolution, where they're starting the calendar over again or attempt to, and turning the churches into temples of reason, and not only altering the systems of government in France, but trying to abolish some modes of life. And so I think that instinct uh, has been around for a while in human beings and exists, I'm sure, as I say, across the political spectrum. But Orwell it gives you the sense of a writer who likes some dirt under his fingernails, who, who wants to be in contact with the real world. And the real world for him means not only the physical material world, but it means the, way, the ways in which people naturally want to live. And he doesn't want to tell people how to live. He's a complicated man, and as I say, in some ways, he's not the most attractive figure, but he's at the same time, for me, a kind of heroic figure. And it has to do with, with that sense of his integrity. Um, as a nonfiction writer, Orwell is, is a master, and you know, essays like Shooting an Elephant or The Lion and the Unicorn, maybe above all, Politics in the English Language, which every student should read, show how much he cared about writing and language. He recognizes that language is dangerous. Language is something that we use for manipulation, for power plays, for cruelty, but that it must and should and can be a vehicle for truth-seeking. And for Orwell, that means pushing towards the truth, even when the truth is inconvenient to one's own side. So we're picking up in the last year of his life with 1984. He knows he has severe tuberculosis. He's writing this book against the clock, and he finished it just in time. 
it's published the same year he dies in 1949. Um, and we're going to look today, I quoted a passage from f- a few chapters in off the top, but we're going to look closely at the beginning of the novel, the opening of the novel, because I think this is a brilliant opening to this novel. And uh, hopefully I'll convince you all that it is too. So um, this is uh, the first page, the first couple of few paragraphs of 1984. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. Winston Smith, his chin nuzzled into his breast in an effort to escape the vile wind, slipped quickly through the glass doors of Victory Mansions, though not quickly enough to prevent a swirl of gritty dust from entering along with him. The hallway smelt of boiled cabbage and old rag mats. At one end of it, a colored poster too large for indoor display had been tacked to the wall. It depicted simply an enormous face, more than a meter wide, the face of a man of about 45 with a heavy black mustache and ruggedly handsome features. Winston made for the stairs. It was no use trying the lift. Even at the best of times, it was seldom working, and at present the electric current was cut off during the daylight hours. It was part of the economy drive in preparation for hate week. The flat was seven flights up, and Winston, who was 39 and had a varicose ulcer above his right ankle, went slowly, resting several times on the way. On each landing, opposite the lift shaft, the poster with the enormous face gazed from the wall. It was one of those pictures which are so contrived that the eyes follow you about when you move. Big Brother is watching you, the caption beneath it ran. Inside the flat, a fruity voice was reading out a list of figures which had something to do with the production of pig iron. The voice came from an oblong metal plaque like a dulled mirror which formed part of the surface of the right-hand wall. Winston turned a switch and the voice sank somewhat, though the words were still distinguishable. The instrument, the telescreen it was called, could be dimmed, but there was no way of shutting it off completely. He moved over to the window. A smallish, frail figure, the meagerness of his body merely emphasized by the blue overalls which were the uniform of the party. His hair was very fair, his face naturally sanguine, his skin roughened by coarse soap and blunt razor blades, and the cold of the winter that had just ended. So this seems like a rather innocuous starting point, an arbitrary starting point for a writer to choose. Why does he begin the novel with this moment? The best answer to that question may simply be, why not? He could have the novel begin with Winston in his flat, doing what he's about to do, which is to take out the diary that he's going to write in. He could have the novel begin with Winston leaving work because he's coming home for lunch. Uh, This is his lunch break. But instead, we have this arrival at his home. That's where Orwell chooses to begin. Why is a hard question to answer. And maybe the answer doesn't matter, because the point I want to make is the way in which he constructs this beginning is really interesting and is full of detail and shows 
you know, Orwell is not a writer of flourish. Uh, he's a writer of precision, cut glass precision. And we'll maybe see that here. So, opening phrase, it was a bright, cold day in April. It was a bright, cold day in April. That already is interesting for a few different reasons. April is a word that matters in English literature. The Canterbury Tales, many of you will know, begins with April in the opening line. Juan that April with a sure suta, the druchta marshet persed to the ruta. Chaucer at the beginning of the Canterbury Tales says, that's Middle English, of course, badly pronounced, but at the beginning of the Canterbury Tales, Chaucer talks about April because April is when his story takes place. And he calls April the season of sweet showers that pierce the drought of March to the root and bathe every vein of every root in such liquor, etc., etc., that flowers are engendered. Chaucer's opening to the Canterbury Tales celebrates April as the season of renewal, of invigoration. The cold months of the winter are past, and April is when the world wakes up again and comes back to itself. The blood starts flowing. The sap starts pumping in the trees. Winter is long and hard. And by the end of it, as any Canadian knows, you're desperate for the weather to break. And April in the northern latitudes is a time when life feels like it's starting again. The nights are starting to get a little bit longer. I know the, I used to love when I lived in Canada, uh, back home, the feeling there'd be a day in the spring, in the early spring. It would be the first day where I would feel like I could open my coat, unzip my coat as I walked and be comfortable. That's what April should be. T.S. Eliot, hundreds of years later, a contemporary of Orwell's, I guess a generation older than Orwell, begins his most famous poem, The Wasteland, playing on that idea, but in a different direction. Eliot begins The Wasteland by saying April is the cruelest month. And he then goes on to explain the reasons for that, and it has to do with the fact that because we wake up again, we can feel pain and be hurt and feel sadness. Orwell, I suspect, has both of these things in mind. You don't casually mention that you're beginning your story with April. What kind of April is this? It's a bright, cold day in April. So it's not Chaucer's April. And we will see, as the story goes on, that the optimism that Chaucer has in his vision of an April pilgrimage, where the physical time of the year of the calendar, when the physical world starts waking up again, is mirrored by an inner spiritual impulse to go on pilgrimage to the shrine of the saint and offer him prayers of thanksgiving. That's very different from what we will have in this bright, cold April. Winston is at the beginning here of a story that he is going to think represents his springtime, uh, but he will be wrong. It will be a blighted spring, a false spring. And so it's a cold April. It's a severe April. It is at the same time a bright April, though. So this is, um, the sun is shining, and that is supposed to be something we are encouraged by. 
but we don't know yet. We will know uh, when we're two-thirds of the way through the book, but we don't know yet that light in this novel is not a good thing. Winston himself, like all the rest of us, will associate light with goodness. But light in this novel is really properly associated with surveillance. The dark is safer in this novel. You do not want to be seen. And all throughout just this, oh, these opening paragraphs, there's the theme of surveillance. It, it's mentioned that there are glass doors at the Victory Mansions that he has to open up. Why does Orwell mention that detail? Well, because, I think, because it heightens our sense of a place where you are watched, even in private, where you cannot get behind a closed door. Winston never can, even at a couple of points where he'll feel like he's temporarily beat the system and found a private place. He'll learn later that he was wrong. Um, see, he opens those glass doors and at the beginning of that, and, or in that first paragraph, it says he tries to close them behind him, but not quickly enough to prevent a swirl of gritty dust from entering along with him. A failure of privacy there alluded to. So the, uh, the coldness of the April perhaps signals the falsity of this spring. The brightness of the April is not positive in spite of what we might associate with the sunshine. The second half of the first sentence, I know I'm going slow. I'm only half a sentence into this thing and I'll try to pick up the pace. Brilliant opening clause, and then the second half of the sentence is equally brilliant. And you wondered, uh, I, I wonder, uh, an Orwell scholar might be able to answer this. Did Orwell refine this paragraph for days and days and days, or did he just get it immediately in the first draft? Neither would surprise me. But we have a bright cold day in April, comma, and the clocks were striking 13. And I would say, would you agree, Eric, that's an unexpected phrase. Very the, much so. The clocks were striking 13. Yeah. So we know, of course, that's military time. That's 24-hour clock. But we don't use that phrase in normal parlance. You know, you might if you're, I don't know, if you're on some kind of uh, deep-sea fishing expedition with buddies or something, go on 24-hour time or something like that. But I don't know anyone who tells the time in uh, a colloquial setting in 24-hour time, and no one says the clocks were strike, would strike, are striking 13. That's, it's, an, it's interesting that he chooses 13, 1 p.m., first of all, because it's the unlucky number. But clocks don't strike 13. They strike 1 through 12, and then they start again at 1. And so that's jarring. That's telling us immediately, half a sentence in, or a full sentence in at this point, that we're in a different place, a different place with different rules. And Orwell is subtle, and so he doesn't belabor the point. He leaves it to us to get it. But clocks don't strike 13, and yet here they do. It's also, I think it's fair to say, a very subtle allusion to a very important moment later in the novel. Uh, the great crisis of the novel, which is Winston and Julia's arrest, will be facilitated, made possible, because of an old-fashioned, as it's called, 12-hour clock that Winston takes a certain delight in because he's a traditionalist um, and he likes old things. And so he likes this room that has a 12-hour clock on the wall. 
He doesn't realize that the 12-hour clock, well, he's betrayed by it at one point because he, he's exhausted and he sleeps the night through and doesn't realize it um, because he wakes up the next day and thinks it's still the evening. Or maybe he wakes up in the morning or in the evening and thinks it's still the morning. I can't quite remember. But I think that clock is also what is hiding a telescreen behind it. And so he's being surveilled through that clock. And then we come to our hero, our dubious hero, our often unattractive, sometimes unpalatable, but I think deeply sympathetic hero, Winston Smith. And that name is wonderful. Who do you think of when you think of Winston? Any, any Winstons come to mind? <laughs> Winston Churchill would be the obvious one, right? I think so. And especially if you're living in, in 1940s Britain. Yeah. Um, so that name Winston is dis- 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 distinctive. It's um, a very traditional English name, but an uncommon one at the same time. Not a lot of Winstons wandering around that I know of, at least. I don't know if I've ever met a Winston. I met a dog named Winston once, and he was, he was a nice, uh, nice, nice white Labrador retriever. Uh, but Winston is not all that common a name. And so when you say Winston in 1949 in Britain, you mean the former and soon to be once again prime minister of His Majesty's government, Winston the hero. There were a lot of things about Churchill's conservative politics that Orwell did not like. I can't imagine Orwell would have come near to voting for Churchill, but Orwell recognizes in that name Winston after the Second World War, a symbol of heroic resistance and also of deep British traditionalism, because Churchill was both those things. He was a lot of other things besides. He was a complicated figure, But Churchill was the bulldog. He was the man flashing the victory sign. He was the man who said, never, 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 never give up in anything great or small. He was the man who said, we shall fight them on the beaches. We shall fight them on the landing grounds. We shall fight them in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender. And he was the man who won the war. And so we have that name for our hero. And we'll see what kind of Winston he is over the course of the novel. In some ways, he has a Churchillian heart, but it's not enough. And then the surname. Nothing wrong with the name Smith. And I speak as someone who has a last name that is not exactly exotic or aristocratic. But the name Smith is a common name. It's the most common name, I think, in England. Johnson might be ahead of it. I can't remember. But Smith is one of those names like Jones and Johnson and Anderson and a few others that are very, 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 very common. And so it's an everyman name. So Winston Smith is, has a name, has a first name that summons up that exemplary heroic figure and a surname that suggests everyman, maybe also the overlooked the unimpressive. Again, apologies to the Smiths out there. But I think that's very deliberate. What's Winston doing? Well, his chin is nuzzled into his breast. He's trying to escape that vile wind. But as we saw, he doesn't close the door quickly enough to prevent the gritty dust from coming in behind him. Victory Mansions. 
we're told immediately that the, he opens the glass doors of Victory Mansions. Uh, this is where he lives. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to tell your friends that you live um, in apartment 12B at the Victory Mansions, uh, that sounds rather grand and impressive. Already we're seeing the abuse of language. Orwell knows that the first-time reader is going to assume certain things. Um, he already begins undermining them with that swirl of gritty dust, which doesn't seem like it, you know, that doesn't seem like it belongs at the Victory Mansions. A glass door doesn't seem to belong on a place called the Victory Mansions. You know, you'd think some some four-inch thick oak thing, iron-bound, would be more suitable, opened by a couple of footmen. But instead, these victory mansions, are that, that phrase victory mansions is going to raise certain expectations in us that Orwell is immediately going to shatter. Because these play, the, this, this word is a small piece of propaganda. Victory is a word that is plastered over all kinds of things in this society. It's basically the party's branding for garbage And so Winston smokes victory cigarettes, the tobacco of which falls out if he holds them vertically. He drinks what we're told is oily victory gin. This is the brand name for party products. And he lives at the victory mansions, which are anything but victorious. And so we are being set up already for disappointment because at the very beginning of the next paragraph, once he has entered into the victory mansions, we're told... The hallway smelt of boiled cabbage and old rag mats. Now, I don't know about you, but if I opened the door to somewhere that I was, and I was expecting it would be grand, maybe a hotel that I've, I've won some contest, and I get to take Mrs. Anderson um, to a hotel for a week, and we open the door, and it smells of boiled cabbage and old rag mats, I think I'm already starting to get disappointed. And the reader, too is now having to adjust uh, because whatever the victory mansions are, they're already coming to be revealed as appealing in spite of their name. At the end of it, we're told, the end of the hallway is a colored poster that's too large for indoor display. That's an interesting statement, too large for indoor display. Someone has put up a poster here, and we'll find out shortly that it's a poster of Big Big Brother. It's political propaganda, and it doesn't fit the space. It's awkwardly jammed into the space. Big Brother is in every corner of everyone's life, squeezing out everything else. And we're given a description of this huge meter-wide face, um, a middle-aged man, ruggedly handsome with a thick mustache. And of course, we're supposed to be thinking of that thick mustache of Comrade Stalin. Winston, we're then told, you know, he doesn't notice this. Uh, or or um, maybe maybe we have a sense of him noticing it, noticing it, but not looking at it, not taking it in because it's ubiquitous. And indeed, we will be told on every floor of the apartment building as he climbs his way up the stairs. There's an identical poster, something that fills your field of vision, but that Winston hardly sees because it's ubiquitous. 
He goes for the stairs, and we're told it was no use trying the lift. Even at the best of times, it was seldom working. Things don't work in the society of 1984, Oceania. Things don't work. And Winston comes to realize that this is deliberate midway through the novel. People use the word Orwellian in our own culture, and they often misuse it. They will apply it sometimes quite correctly to the idea of a political tyranny, but they will also misapply it sometimes. If you're talking about, if you're describing a kind of space-aged society of control and, you know, where, where everything kind of gleaming white and, and, and really sterile and clinical, people will sometimes apply the, the, the label Orwellian to that, but, but it's a misapplication. Because Orwell's tyranny, at some point in the book, he says that in this society, the only thing that works properly is the police. Everything else is dingy and degraded and broken and rusty and dusty and tired and unsatisfying. And that Winston realizes, you know, it's, it's not a bug, it's a feature. It's not an accident that the people in this society live lives that are not just hemmed in by this horrible oppressive state, but that have the joy and the color and the beauty drained out of them. And already Winston, you know, we get that with that smell that hits his, his nostrils when he comes in the door. We get it also with the fact that he doesn't even bother pushing the elevator button because what's the point? This is a place where even at the so-called victory mansions, the lifts don't work. Orwell teases us as he goes on. The electric current was cut off during daylight hours. It was supposed, so that's okay. That's, that's a, um, I guess California's going through that a little bit right now, cost cutting. But we're told it was part of the economy drive in preparation for hate week. We have no idea what that's about at this point. But of course, it has to go with the, the sort of quasi-religious festival in this culture. Every day at the office, Winston has to undergo at least one or maybe two, if I, if I recall, two minutes hates, little spasmodic bursts of aggression that are induced on the collectivity at the office by the inner party through showing propaganda films in order to sort of pet them up and keep them violently engaged on behalf of the party. And then there's a week-long festival of hate every year. But in order to celebrate hate week good and proper, they have to cut back on the electricity. He has to go up seven flights of stairs. I'm Personally, a magnificent physical specimen, but um, seven flights of stairs. I think I'd rather take the elevator. I don't know about you. And this is hard for Winston because we're told that he's 39 years old and has a varicose ulcer above his right ankle. And so he has to go slowly. Nothing immoral about having a varicose ulcer. It's the sort of thing I think today we could treat fairly easily. But it suggests something about Winston being weak, undermining maybe the heroic grandeur of that name. And in some ways, Winston is not weak. Winston, Winston is tough-minded, but he's physically frail. 
And that's a word Orwell will use a little further on in the third paragraph, the final paragraph I read. He's frail. This is a small man, a meager man, we're told. This is not a great strapping Apollo who looks like he could take on half a dozen of the secret policemen. In a sense, this physical meagerness amplifies his heroism because he will run real risks for a few different reasons in defiance of the party. And it's all the more meaningful because he is not a big strapping man. But it also says, you know, he's also being positioned before our eyes in another way as small because he is very small. He's going to be a tiny little speck resisting the might of an all-powerful totalitarian system. And so we're having this hinted at it at us already. He gets into his apartment and we hear about the telescreen. He walks into his apartment and, you know, this is straight out of the Soviet Union. He's hearing a news bulletin about the production of pig iron. He knows we will find out, or he believes, we will find out that he believes none of this stuff he hears over the telescreen about the great economic um, and industrial victories the party is winning. He believes it's all lies. They're always being told the great strides their society is making. He's always being told how successful and happy the people of Oceania are, and he knows it is a lie. This voice is coming from the telescreen, and right now is when Orwell introduces one of the most important characters in the book, because the telescreens, but you know, if Orwell had given it a couple more years, I think he would have had an understanding of television that might have sort of shaped the way he imagined his his device. Although maybe not. Maybe he he would have. Maybe the the, the telescreen is mighty what he might have stuck with. But the telescreen is like a two way television, or it's like a modern computer monitor that has a camera on the top, and so the telescreen both beams in, pipes in information to the user and also records the user all the time. So it's a two-way pipeline and both of the directions are miserable. It pipes in constant propaganda and noise. And at any moment when you're in front of a telescreen, you're aware that you might be being watched. You can't be certain This does not seem to be a digital society in any way, so it doesn't seem like we have a sense of a computer algorithm that's able to sort of monitor everyone on one level or another. But Winston thinks to himself at some point about how you never know when someone maybe uh, decides to pull up your feed in particular and watch you. There is no privacy in this society. And so we're left at the end of this third paragraph with this smallish, frail figure standing at the window, wearing blue, uh, blue overalls. You don't wear clothes in Oceania, at least if you're a party member, which Winston is. You wear a uniform. And we get this little description of him, fair-haired, a naturally sanguine face, in other words, a pink complexion that's supposed to be suggestive of health and vitality and even optimism, but it's naturally sanguine. In other words, it would be sanguine 
if it wasn't for his circumstances. His skin has been roughened, again, by bad soap and bad razor blades. So that's our initial setup of this novel. And like I say, I hope, I hope I've managed to convince you that it's a damn good one. Orwell does an awful lot of work in three paragraphs, and a great deal of it is very subtle. He is not expecting every reader to stop and say, 13 o'clock? What the hell? I'd better make a note of that in case it becomes important later on in the book. Uh, but a good reader, a good writer doesn't do that. A good writer doesn't write just so that bells go off all the time in our heads. But he's woven in to these simple paragraphs of just kind of business-like description. So much of the feel, the texture, the sense of oceanic society, and an awful lot of the thematic stakes of the novel are also present in these first three paragraphs. What do you reckon? It really is a great book. It's worth going back and and reading if you've already read it uh, or if you haven't read it uh, before, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think an exercise like this hopefully can show that it is worth going back over it. That, that it's it's one of those books that you will see, having been through it once, things that you didn't know you were looking for yeah. the first time around. What I think what Orwell, Orwell really captures is human nature and their innate ability to kind of tend toward authoritarianism. The governments of the world throughout history, they always seem to lean toward control and authoritarianism. Yeah, not too many are marked out, I guess, by a real libertarian streak. Um, and yeah, the, the troubling fact um, in this novel about the government is that we discover, you know, it's got this constant drumbeat of socialist, English socialism, Ingsoc is the ruling ideology of the party. And it's got this kind of constant propaganda stream um, that sounds very much like mid-20th century socialism about the working man and the little man and the brighter tomorrow. And it's, it's, it's highly egalitarian. In other words, it's against all kind of stratification by rank or, or inherited privilege. And so you come to assume that the people running this society are sort of ruthlessly promoting their vision of what is best for everyone else. And we disagree with them because we see how awful it is in practice. But we take for granted that they're true believers. And then we make the horrible discovery in the last third of the novel that they're not true believers, that, they, that they, all they care about is power. And that they are completely undeceived about that. And so Winston's nemesis, O'Brien, a man he initially believes in and looks up to, but then comes to discover is a monster, O'Brien will tell him that power is the only, you know, we're not, this is, this is not about social justice. It's not about um, a better tomorrow for everyone. Those of us who are in the inner party who are really pulling the strings of this society know that it is about the only thing that matters, which is power. And that's, that's, that's scary. I remembered, again, thinking back to reading this the first time as a teenager, I remember reading that and having my, my stomach drop. Because when he says that, you realize there's no kind of moral argument 
that has any purchase anymore with a man like that. Um, that he can laugh when Winston says, you know, like you're telling, you're going to tell me that this is all for the people. And O'Brien just sort of sneers at him. Yeah. Um, so, um, it's, uh, it's, um, an incredible book. Um, and, uh, yeah, I hope if you haven't read it, um, beloved listener, you'll give it a whirl. I will, uh, Notice the opening passage, which I quoted from just briefly. As I said, I don't know if it was the best passage to pair with uh, with the beginning of the novel, but it's such a beautiful, sad one. We have a few windows opened over the course of the book into Winston's earlier life. We know a few things about him, a few things that Orwell sketches. He sketches them briefly but with powerful strokes. Um, and um, we hear a couple of times about Winston's family. This is the first time they've taken away from him. But before he became a teenager, he had lost his mother and his father and his sister. We will learn later in the book that he carries deep guilt for something he did to his mother and sister. We're given a little bit of a picture here of a society at war in the 50s. The Second World War had ended victorious for the Allies. Orwell himself believed that it meant bad news for the future because of the looming threat of the Soviet Union to the East. He also took a very dim view of America and believed that it was becoming a superpower that would have its own totalitarian impulses. Um, I, I hope if he turned up today, he would say that he was wrong. Some of you will probably not agree with that. And so there has been a new war in Britain in the 50s, and Winston's parents were killed in that war. Um, he remembers back, however, to an earlier time before the party was all-powerful in Britain. Um, and he's thinking of his mother and his sister. He's having this dream of them going down in a sinking ship. We'll hear later on about an episode where his family has to hide from a bombing in um, an underground station, a subway station, and they go down, down, down. And so there's a little bit of forecasting here. But his mother and sister are dying, and he believes in the dream that they're dying because of him. There's no reason as to why, but in the dream, everybody knows it, and we don't understand why. Over the course of the book, however, we will understand that if this is true, well, I, that I don't think this is true, and it's not true because they died for some other reason. It's, it's not true because this is a society where sacrifice is impossible. Winston is allowed to live not so that he can make a difference, not so that he can fight the party. He just becomes the plaything of the party. And so their sacrifice becomes meaningless if sacrifice they did. So there's a pain in this book that is beyond tragic. And that's why I picked this passage because of how Orwell talks through Winston about how tragedy is impossible in this world. Tragedy is an aesthetic 
process that makes pain beautiful. It doesn't take pain away, erase it, efface it, but it shows the beauty in it. And tragedy is not allowed in this world anymore. It's not, it's not something people are capable of experiencing. As he says, where is it? Uh, Today there were fear, hatred, and pain, but no dignity of emotion, no deep or complex sorrows. And so he thinks back to his mother, and of course, the the simple fact that she is his mother is reason enough for his thoughts to go to her. But she also represents a set of things. You know, aside from the fact that she's a person who no longer exists, she represents a set of qualities and ideals that no longer exist. Tragedy, in other words, um, a kind of suffering that is made, if not made okay, at least made meaningful or even beautiful. Beauty itself, love, dignity, all these things are taken away in this world. Winston, early on in the book, will have, will, will wander into an old junk shop selling little knickknacks and curiosities from an, a bygone age. And he picks up a paperweight, a glass paperweight with a piece of coral embedded in it. And he decides that it's beautiful. It, it moves him. It moves him because it's not really, it's not functional, especially. I guess it would work to weigh down papers, but so would a lump of pure lead. It's just a kind of gratuitous mark of beauty in the world. And like many beautiful things, it's fragile, it's glass. And at the end, of part two of the book, it will be shattered. And so it's a little touchstone, a little piece of beauty that he is allowed for a while to possess, but that doesn't really fit into the world anymore. All these things are set up, as I say, um, and I hope I've made a convincing case in these opening paragraphs. So reread the book if it's been a while and see what you think. How does this 1984 compare to Brave New World? Yeah, um, that's that's another oft-discussed topic. Uh, it's interesting. I said people argue about whether 1984 Animal Farm is Orwell's greatest work. Uh, they also argue about which is the better dystopian novel, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World or Orwell's 1984. And I guess there are two ways of coming at the question. You could say, which is the better novel, the better, more effective novel? And you could also say, which is the more accurate forecasting of the future world? You know, does our society look more like it's tending towards Brave New World or towards 1984? I think 1984 is the better novel, personally. Brave New World is a work of genius. I don't find it as engaging as a novel. I find it engaging as a thought experiment. Whereas with Winston's story, I just become engrossed in it as well as intellectually stimulated. That's just me. Not everyone is going to agree with that. I think when it comes to the question of which one is a more accurate prophecy of the future, again, you can take your pick. Orwell saw something about surveillance culture you know, the ubiquity of the telescreen is um, really resonant in a world where we are always possibly on camera. 
The weird thing about our world, though, is that we're voluntarily most of the time on camera, right? It's because we're content to be filmed all the time. But that those themes of surveillance are really resonant, and most important, his his sense of language and the the political corruption of language is so so astute. Huxley, however, and Huxley actually um, read the book as soon as it came out. Brave New World, I think, was published in the mid 1920s, so it was it was 20 years old at the time that 1984 came out. And Huxley wrote Orwell a letter of appreciation after it was published, and he gently pushed back on Orwell's vision of the future and said, you know, I think I got it right. I think it is more likely that we would, so to speak, amuse ourselves to death, that governments would control us through manipulating what we want rather than what we're afraid of. And I think when we look at our own culture, we can see you know, the way in which technologies have been used or can be used at least to kind of stupefy us and sate us and distract us. And so that seems, you know, the the tyranny of, you know, falling into caramel um, rather than falling into lava seems more likely to me, at least, when I think of early 21st century uh, North America but who knows? Uh, another ten years could prove Orwell right. So let's all let's all read both of these books again, and then do what we can to make sure neither comes true. Um, but that's a good question. Well, um, excited to be back with you again soon. We have Christopher Marlowe on the schedule, if memory serves. We have what else? I think we have Milton coming up. We also maybe have, um, I think the Catcher in the Rye might figure in there, and yeah, also some Dickens. Yeah. That's another. That's a that's a big one for me. Catcher I love that. Rye. Yeah, I think that book is. It's not, I, um, our generation, Eric. I think we're both uh, we're both men uh, of let's say generously in my case at least the early middle ages but that's maybe <laughs> that's maybe stretching the generosity yeah, yeah i think i have a few years on you um unfortunately for me but i think uh, our generation was the last one i could be wrong our legions of fans may write in letters to to tell me how wrong yes. i am but our generation was um i came of age in the 90s and we were still hit hard by catcher in the rye it mattered yeah. to the readers of my generation i feel like that's not true anymore i feel like there are individual undergraduates i'll encounter who love the catcher in the rye but it's just not you know it was a kind of rite of passage for yeah. us to read the catcher in the rye but it's that good it's an amazing it novel um it's beautiful it's funny and it's so astute on on you know some big questions. So I'm looking forward to talking about that one. Yeah, me too. All right. Well, this has been Professing Literature. David Anderson signing off for Eric Williams. And we will be back with you soon. Take care. Bye.